man threatens a messenger. You bring the crowns and heads of conquered kings to my city steps. You insult my queen. You threaten my people with slavery and death. Oh, I've chosen my words carefully, Persian. Perhaps you should have done the same. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is Sparta! A handful of Spartan soldiers defend their country from a massive army of invading Persians. It's our 300th episode spectacular, Woohoo! and we're talking about guys who snicker in the movie theater, how hard it is to find a good piercer in Persia, and what Zack Snyder was like in film school. Then we find out if 300 stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say The movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? I'm Alan Noah, you're James Brief, and this is episode 300! 300, James! We did it! I'm incredibly excited about 300 episodes. Well, you don't seem it! If the listeners could see my face, they would see how excited I am. Your face doesn't look that excited. It's incredibly excited. You and I have different definitions of the word incredibly excited. I'm so excited! 300! Yay, 300! This is so cool! I want to say I can't believe it. I kind of can believe it because, you know, we're good at doing stuff, but that's pretty impressive. Like, I think it's okay to pat ourselves on the back for this. 300 episodes is a lot. I think this is the greatest thing you've ever created of anything, podcast, humans, or anything. Um, I mean, I do have two amazing children. I think I've mentioned them before. But you have 300 podcast children. (laughs) If each episode (laughs) is one of your babies... (laughs) So by sheer volume... By sheer volume, I mean, uh, the two two kids are are among your 302 favorite creations. (laughs) I mean... Whatever. I'm proud of my children, and I'm proud of the fact that we have recorded 300 episodes. You know, when you think about it, as I have been reflecting on this milestone... Our second episode was about Ghostbusters because they were rebooting Ghostbusters in 2016. Since then, they have rebooted Ghostbusters again. Like, we did an episode about the Batman movies because of the Lego Batman movie, and then they rebooted the Batman series again. We did an episode on Top Gun when Tom Cruise was like, oh, yeah, there will be a sequel. And we were like, yeah, sure, there's never going to be a sequel. And now there's actually going to be a sequel. We did our Spider-Man episode for, I think, the first Tom Holland Spider-Man movie. And now that trilogy has completed. Like, we've been around, man. We did the Coming to America episode because we figured that this mythological Coming to America sequel would never happen. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. These things, that they just go in cycles. But you know what stays? What? Doing these episodes every week because that's been a lot of fun. It has been a lot of fun. It has been remarkably consistent. We've kept going through a global pandemic. We've been doing this through three presidential administrations, which is kind of cool. 
That's true. We've gone through the re-rise and the re-fall of the XFL, and the podcast has stayed intact. Oh, right. I forgot that that happened. (laughs) (laughs) I think most people forgot that that happened. Well, The Rock bought the XFL, so we will be through another rise of the XFL and probably another fall. Cool. Uh, But looking back on the podcast— Were there any movies that you were, like, really shocked about that stood the test of time or maybe that didn't? You know, I was thinking about this, and there were a couple movies that I was surprised that both stood up and a couple that I was surprised did not stand up. I have to say, um, when we first came back from Pandemic in our first shows that we did together, uh, we did the Back to the Future trilogy. Oh, yeah. And I have to admit, I I was pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed Back to the Future Part Mm -hmm. 3. That stood up a lot better than I remembered it standing up. Um, Another film, admittedly, I kind of just assumed was going to be really bad. And I'm going to stand by what I said during the review. The first scene is not funny, in my opinion. It's one of the weaker scenes, so I did not have a good uh, hope for this film. But I finally saw it, and UHF was a funny film. I was really happy that you liked that one. I was genuinely excited because I knew that I loved it and that Eli loved it and that your sister Joanna loved it. And I thought, like, uh, James isn't going to like it. And, you know, you'd be entitled to your incorrect opinion. But I was really happy that you liked it. I I did. How about you? Were there any films you were surprised, like, really stood up that you were not expecting them to stand up? No, not in terms of, like... The verdict of does the movie stand the test of time or not? I'll say that I was really shocked about the Cisco kid. I was just shocked that that movie existed and I'd never heard of it. You know, that there was a movie with Harrison Ford and Gene Wilder and that it was all about like the Jewish experience and that I'd never heard of it. Like, how had I never heard that that movie existed? And I was really excited to find out that it existed and then watch it. And I really enjoyed it. The only caveat is that that film doesn't exist. There is no film called The Cisco Kid about uh, servers and a young kid and servers. The Frisco Kid. Oh. See, that, that, that just shows that this forgotten Harrison Ford, Gene uh, Wilder film just is completely lost from the zeitgeist. Completely lost, which I agree is, is pretty shocking. Yeah, but it's also just sad that it's like lost from my mind. <laughs> I got the name wrong. I'm embarrassed. Whatever. Who cares? I'm drunk on our 300th episode-ness. I was a little surprised at how much I was disappointed by Escape from New York. I thought I was going to like that more. And I was just like, oh, this is really, really terrible. You know, uh, my disappointment in films that breaks into two categories. One were films that I was just kind of disappointed that I didn't like it because it's such an acclaimed film. Two films that uh, I was glad that you were in agreement with me because as I was watching it and I was like, oh my God, this is so boring. Can you name these two films both best picture winners that neither of us liked? In fact, both of us disliked. Uh, They're both from the 80s. I don't know. One of them had a fantastic theme song. 
I will try to do the theme song. Do 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 do. Oh, the uh, the running movie. Uh, um, uh, exactly. You can't Ch- even remember Chariots what it's called. Chariots of Fire. Why can't I remember movies and titles today? Right. I mean, that film we both did not like, and I was just so disappointed. Yeah. The other film. It just didn't resonate with me. It stars, uh, I think she might be the only artist to have a number one song in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Oh, Dolly Parton? No. Uh, I thought thought you were thinking of a nine to five. Um... It's not Whitney Houston. No, but it's the other biggest female singer of all time that you're missing. Oh, Cher? That's right. Oh, yeah, Moonstruck. That was pretty bad. It just didn't click with us. Yeah, sorry to Courtney. She'll be mad at me for saying that. And the one film I would say that I was just so disappointed and actually just so surprised it didn't stand up was the number one box office hit in America, and I think either number one or number two in the world in 1987. Do you know what film I'm talking about? No. Crocodile Dundee. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I was kind of expecting that one to be bad. Uh, Now, let me ask you, were there any reviews of mine that you are still mad at me about? Um, I wouldn't say mad. Just before we started recording, and you'll probably deny it, but you did admit that the Star Trek movies are garbage, and you know that deep down, and you're not going to admit it on the podcast. I know, I know. But like, yeah, like you know that those movies are garbage, and I know, and I know you know, and you know I know you know, and everyone knows. It's fine. You've got to like, you know, keep up your <laughs> demeanor and everything. I get it. Um, I just assumed you were going to say Sorcerer. Like, you're just mad at me for having uh, said that film stood up. No, 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 no. That's fine. Mad is not the right word because I'm not going to get mad at you for your opinion, even when your opinions are wrong and stupid. Uh, I was shocked when you said that the first two Muppet movies did stand the test of time and the Muppets Take Manhattan didn't because for some reason you like the Great Muppet Caper more than the Muppets Take Manhattan, which is like a crazy take that like you've got to be the only person in the world who has that opinion. I'm convinced, but okay, you know, whatever to each their own. I was glad that you liked two out of the three of them. So I was willing to take that as a win. I was surprised. I liked the first one. The second one I got through, it was charming enough. The third one had some boring numbers, and that's why. So, but I have a very simple answer with yours. You are just wrong, and I am shocked when you said that The Prince of Egypt does not stand up. You are wrong. It is a brilliant film. It is a beautiful film, and it stands up, though. And you were just wrong about that. No, that movie is a poor retelling of an amazing story. And it was a shame. Beautiful. I'll give you beautiful. Also, I couldn't tell you any of those song titles or hum any of them or anything. So all very, very forgettable. Way inferior to the uh, Muppets. Uh, which which Muppet film? Uh, the song is way better than The Prince of Egypt from? Um, Literally all of them. <laughs> literally every song from all three of those Muppet films are better than every song in The Prince of Egypt. That is correct, yes. Okay, all right. There you go, folks. Look, I like the fact that we disagree. And honestly, sometimes when we do agree, I'm a little bit like, 
Oh, that was kind of boring. You know? I also thought I was going to have the hot take on like, aha, I don't think Caddyshack stands up. I was surprised you said no to that film. But uh, that being said, are there any films that you've ever graded that you kind of regret? Because you could say I stand by the review I made at the time. However, the whole point of this podcast is... Alan Noah in 20-something has a different opinion from Alan Noah of 1900-something or early 2000-something. So it's very possible that the Al of 2017 may have had a different opinion of the Al of today. So are there any reviews that you uh, would amend or that you have, uh, you know, caveats to? I can't think of any. And I'm not even saying that in a way of like, I said what I said and I stand by what I said. I mean, that would be on brand for me. But honestly, like I genuinely can't think of one where I'm like, you know, I've really thought about it. And uh, I just don't like my cousin Vinny anymore. Like, no, like that opinion hasn't changed at all. You know, like there's no movie that I can think of off the top of my head where I would say yes to that question. Are there any where that's changed for you? No, but there's one film I think might be more charming than I gave it credit for. I think that there might be more charm in Tremors than I gave it credit for at at the time. I've thought about that film more than I I thought I would of a film that uh, didn't stand up. So I'm just questioning whether that film might be more charming than I gave it credit for. No, it's not. It's it's not. You can sleep easy at night. That movie sucks. It's okay. fine. It's all fine right. that it sucks. It's okay. Ke- Kevin Bacon's doing okay. It's all right. What about Michael Gross? He's also fine, even though he was also in that shitty Vanilla Ice movie that you made me watch. But let's talk about the movie 300, because sometimes, just in general, I happen to think that the obvious joke is the wrong joke and you shouldn't make the obvious joke because it's the obvious joke. To me, we just had to do 300 for episode 300. It just seemed like, what else could we do, right? I mean, it was just an obvious film to do. I didn't think it was an obvious joke. I mean, I don't think it's that funny, but it's appropriate. Oh, it's funny. I have been laughing already in my head about when I post this episode and I type in the little box, episode 300, colon, 300. Like, that makes me laugh. And I haven't even done it, and it's making me laugh thinking about it, and I can't wait to do it. I know how lame that sounds. I heard it, but I am excited to do that. I think it's very, very funny. And this movie is, like, right on the cusp of the 15-year rule that we've established for ourselves, depending on when you count its official release date, because it was shown at some, like, movie marathon in 2006, but apparently that wasn't the complete version, and its official release date was in 2007, like, just about 15 years ago. So we're close to the wire, but it still counts. Oh, no, no, we're a couple weeks past the uh, official release date in North America, so so we're all good out. Don't worry. Oh, I know, because I checked as soon as I was thinking about it. I'm like, oh, 300, we have to do 300, and then I like checked the dates, and I was very relieved that we would just barely make it. 
Yeah, uh, this film is a movie retelling of a graphic novel. And it's a graphic novel from uh, Frank Miller. He's very famous for having done uh, The Dark Knight Rises and Swamp Thing. And he reimagined uh, a lot of uh, stories that people had heard before. But uh, this was not a, a made-up story. This was his take on the legendary Battle of Thermopylae. And this was a battle fought between the small group of soldiers from the Greek city-state of Sparta and the enormous Persian army. Army led by Xerxes. And the Spartan army was led by King Leonidas. And they used their battle experience and their knowledge of the local terrain to gain the upper hand against Xerxes and his army. Leonidas and his group of 300 soldiers do all they can to fight off the Persian king and his army and inspire the rest of Greece to unite against their common enemy. It stars Gerard Butler. He's famous because of 300. You might have known him from something else. He was the guy from something else. I mean, this made him Gerard Butler. Does this movie star Gerard Butler or does this movie star Gerard Butler's abs? You know, that that's interesting because I, I watched this with my girlfriend and she basically said that this was a battle movie porn version for either straight women or gay men or people that want to admire men's 24 packs that that's what she said i mean yes she is correct i think that the legend is that the spartans fought naked and i think this is like the best that they could do without you know being that accurate but like even if they did fight naked and even if they were in really good shape I feel like they couldn't have all had abs like that. I mean, don't you need like modern gym equipment to get like those kind of abs? I mean, it was eugenics in operation. I, I mean, they got rid of any weak looking male baby. So this really might have been a race of, you know, incredibly fit men. Who knows? Right. And. I feel like this movie was a pretty big hit when it came out. I don't think I saw it in the theater, but maybe I did? I genuinely don't remember, but I know that there was a sequel a few years later, so it had to have done at least pretty good. Oh, this film was an enormous hit. Okay. And it was a $65 million budgeted film. It opened on March 9, 2007 with $70 million. It made gangbusters. It made $210 million in America alone, so three and a half times its budget, and over $450 million worldwide. So this was an enormous film. Launched uh, Zack Snyder, the director, into superstardom. He had previously been famous mostly for directing the Dawn of the Dead remake. Mm -hmm. And he got to do uh, The Watchmen. Uh, that was a film that uh, had been considered unfilmable for decades since it came out. He also got, based on a comic. Right, also based on a graphic novel. And uh, then he got to be uh, sort of the uh, showrunner of the uh, DC uh, cinematic universe, for better, for worse. Right. And he also did Sucker Punch. Was that a comic book also? No, I believe that was his first unique IP. He also did uh, the Owls of Gahoof or something. The, the huh. Guardians. I think it was a, an animated film. Oh, never heard of that one. Yeah, and you know the movie starts off with voiceover, which people who have listened to 300 episodes of this podcast know that I hate voiceover. And the thing about the voiceover in this movie is that it feels like the text in the corner of a comic book panel, that this is what's telling you what's happening. And then they sort of like 
flip it and they say, no, it's not just some omniscient narrator. This is a guy who is telling an audience about King Leonidas. It's this character, Dilios, who we meet later on in the movie. But it's like he's telling people about Leonidas and his upbringing and everything, but he's also talking to the audience and giving us exposition. And if he was only talking to Spartans, he wouldn't be describing, well, according to Spartan legend, we do this, this, and this, because the Spartan people already know about all of those things. So he wouldn't need to explain it. He's explaining it to the movie audience. He is a little bit. Uh, the actor that's the narrator, this guy, uh, David Wenham, they picked a fantastic voice actor. I mean, this guy's voice is amazing. They did alter it in post to make it more deep. That's fine. That's that, that's fine. But I'm going to say that the voice that comes out here, it's superb for this voiceover. And something else that we're going to see in this film is that it weirdly veers into the fantastical in that there's almost these monsters and weirdly deformed humans. And the fact that the film is told as a voiceover allows us to hear what is possibly an exaggerated version of what happened and most likely is. And that's allowed because we know exactly why this narrator is telling this story and why he may even be embellishing it a little bit. And I'm going to argue that the voice over here, it does maybe give you some stuff you didn't have to know. You said it correctly. It, it kind of gives it a, a graphic novel feel. Zack Snyder was really trying to make Frank Miller's pages into real life. You can tell that's his goal. Yeah, the entire movie feels like a comic book brought to life. It is a very deliberate decision by Zack Snyder, and it does feel that way. So mission accomplished there. There are some lines in that early voiceover where he's talking about how the Spartans will cast away any baby that is like too small and puny because they will only want like, you know, the strong men, which is eugenics, like you said. But also all babies are small and puny. So like, where do they draw the line? And then, you know, later in the movie, we see the deformed guy and then they say, oh, that baby would have been killed for sure. But like, I don't know. I mean, you see a lot of babies right after they're delivered. Like, they're all small. They're all puny. I would assume this means all premature babies are probably thrown away. Uh, all babies with any kind of deformity, maybe even with some kind of birthmark that they thought was a bad omen. Or Yeah, babies are all small, but there are weaker babies than other babies. There are babies that don't cry right away, and there are babies that maybe were blue, and you know, babies that had a cord wrapped around their, their neck when they're born. Today, we can get, you know fix that in five seconds, but uh, if you don't fix it quickly, those babies are going to have some issues. So I can see what what they could have done by selecting stronger and weaker babies. Because we literally score babies when they're born. They have something called an APGAR score. It's kind of out of 10, really out of 9. But uh, a baby that has this APGAR score of under 5, that's probably you know, a baby that's not necessarily starting out great. You know what they should do is the doctor should hold up like the signs with the number, like in the Olympics, or I guess probably like the old-timey Olympics, you know, like it would say like 8.2 or whatever. Like that would just make it like kind of more fun in the delivery room. We do announce it. 
No, I think it's more fun if like you hold up a giant sign. Well, that's true. But like when when he's describing like Leonidas fighting the wolf, that voiceover was annoying. And again, I get it because they're going for the comic book feel. But when he's describing like the wolf's eyes were dark, its razor sharp claws marched slowly in the snow. Yes, I see it. I am watching the wolf. You don't have to describe what the wolf is doing. Whatever. It's fine. It gets us to King Leonidas as an adult. There is a messenger who comes from Persia. And basically this messenger is saying, you need to submit to my king. And Leonidas kills the messenger. And, you know, that's an expression. Don't kill the messenger. But he literally kills the messenger because he was insulted. You know, you come into my land and say, I need to surrender. No, I'm killing you. And that sends the message back to your people, what I think of you. And that shot of like him kicking the guy down this well or pit or something, I feel like that was a shot that even though I hadn't read the 300 comic, you just look at it and you're like, that was exactly how it looked in the comic. And then, yeah, you can Google it and see the shot from the movie and the shot from the comic book and they're virtually identical. Yeah, and it sets the entire tone of the film because the guy, uh, before he's killed, he goes, no man, Greek or Persian, no one kills a messenger. But Leonidas, before the messenger speaks, he does tell him, know that any man, messenger included, is responsible for the words that come out of their mouth. He didn't just come in and say, you have to bow to uh, Xerxes. He comes in with like sort of a a necklace full of skulls Mm -hmm. of defeated kings from neighboring city-states with their crowns still on their skulls. I mean, this was no peaceful emissary that was coming in and saying, we'd like to discuss the terms of our peaceful coexistence. Right, right. And when Leonidas kills him, he yells, this is Sparta! Because the guy said, this is madness. Right. And I feel like I kind of remember people saying that, like out of context, you know, when you'd be like, drinking a beer or something. This is Sparta. I don't know why. It was just a thing that people said then. That doesn't really stand the test of time. I don't think people really say that anymore. But then Leonidas needs to go and like speak to these elders who live on the mountaintop and get their permission to go to war because even though he's the king, they have traditions that he has to follow. And these guys are kind of old, deformed, and inbred. And they demand an offering, like they want to be paid off. They want to be bribed. And I just couldn't wrap my head around that. Like these guys live on a mountaintop. They're pretty well isolated. Although then later, like their word does get down to the other people who live in Sparta. So there is some kind of line of communication. But why do they need gold? Like they're just like creepy old dudes who live on a mountaintop. Like what do they need that for? I still think they have their needs. They have to buy stuff for all the stuff that they they need up there. But it's a weird subplot of this film. I feel like I kind of want to know more about these oracles, but the amount that they gave us was not enough. I feel like you could have either cut this oracle scene entirely or they could have given us a little bit more. 
and it's a beautiful scene. It's really cool, and I love the makeup on these guys. And do they have some beautiful woman there, like, drugged up, and are they raping her all the time? I mean, because yeah. they said something along the lines of, like, she's there to fulfill the needs of the—I assume they meant the sexual needs of them. Oh, yes, definitely. That was very, very heavily implied that, yeah, they they have this woman who is their oracle, but also their sex slave. Right, but she seems to be completely drugged up in yes. some ways. Yes, and they're completely corrupt too. They take the money and then they're like, "Hey, you know, it's the, not the right season for for doing this." And I was wondering, are they really believing this, or are they maybe paid off by somebody? Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't tell what, why they were saying no to Leonidas. I think the implication is that they are being bribed by someone from Xerxes's camp. Also, they don't like Leonidas because he doesn't sufficiently kiss their ass. Exactly. I think that's part of it. But he's deciding that he's going to go off to war. And he has like this cover story where he's not taking an army to war. That was forbidden. I'm just going for a walk with my 300 bodyguards. Nothing wrong with that. But he says his goodbye to his queen, played by Lena Hetty. Hetty? Is that how you say her last name? I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but uh, I do know that she's just amazing at everything she does. She's so cool. Agree, agree. I would say now she's best known as a different queen, Queen Cersei on Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Um, I love her final line to uh, King Leonidas before he goes off to war. And she just calls him Spartan and says, Spartan, come back with your shield or on it. Because in Spartan tradition, it is an honor to die on the battlefield. You can't run away. So either you die on the battlefield and you will be carried home on your shield, or you come back holding your shield because, yay, you won. But, you know, you can't drop your shield and run away in battle and then come home. That is completely dishonorable. You know, I remember seeing this. I saw it, I think, opening weekend. And as you could imagine, it skewed male and young, the audience. Sure. And I remember that this scene, right before they go off to battle, also has this scene of uh, Leonidas, as as we'll find out. Uh, or as I think he and his wife know, this is the final time that they'll ever get to uh, make love. And, and I still to this day remember all the snickering in the theater. And this is one of those theater scenes. Oh, God, it just ruined the scene for me. <laughs> what kind of a bros were you seeing this movie with that they were snickering at boobs no it wasn't my friends it was the theater itself i'm talking about sure sure which movie theater was it it was um palisade center in west Nyack, new york Mm, well i think that is a damning condemnation of that movie theater and the people who patronize it or Uh, patronize it in 2007 a circa march there you go but basically the whole strategy that leonidas has is that Even though the Persian army is huge and he only has 300 men, he knows this one place where it's really narrow. And so what he's going to do is he's going to force the Persians into this really narrow passageway. They're going to build a wall, so they'll have to go in this one little narrow gap between these uh, rock formations. And there, their huge numbers won't help the Persians. And the fact that the 300 Spartans know the terrain, that's all the advantage they need. And that makes sense. 
It's something that's been done for millennia. The Second Punic War, famous mostly for Hannibal, he took the Carthaginian army and marched with his elephants. He marched all the way from North Africa, basically through Spain and the Alps down to Italy, modern Italy. And when he was in the Alps, that's pretty much when he was in these thin canyons, that's pretty much what the uh, the Europeans did. They basically just dropped boulders on top of this army, a big percentage of this army that started going through this canyon did not make it out of the canyon. It's a bottleneck, essentially. Yeah. And it doesn't matter that you have 50,000 people behind the front line. If the front line can't pass this rock formation, it doesn't matter. And I'll say that they make this very clear to the audience. It's an incredibly simple battle strategy. It's really clearly defined for us. And, and I think it was done well. Yes, agree. But then Leonidas meets this guy, Ephialtes, I'm probably saying that wrong, who is disfigured, who is the guy who probably should have been cast off when he was a baby, but his parents didn't. And he really wants to join Leonidas's army. He wants to be a, a valiant soldier for Sparta. And he tells Leonidas that there's a goat pass, like a place where goat farmers would walk. And this is a weakness. This is how the Persians could go around and encircle the 300 Spartans and trap them. And Leonidas's response to this is, you can't join my army because you can't hold up your shield. And that's part of like our thing. So, you know, bye. And like you kind of understand what he's saying, but he's such a dick about it. Like he could have said, listen, Thank you very much for that information. I really appreciate it. That's super helpful. I can't have you in the army, but I really want you to do something else and be part of the team. Instead, he's like, yeah, you can't hold up your shield. Maybe you could like bring water to our wounded or whatever, or don't. I don't really care. Bye. And then literally the next thing he says to like one of his captains is, I just hope that no one tells the Persians about that goat pass. Like, don't hope for it. Be nice to the guy who told you about it. Yeah, I agree that something should have been done better, but I think that's a lot of hindsight. Like, in hindsight, you would think, uh, oh, you know about this? Let me just kill you. It's one of those, like, mean Spartan things. Like, you would think they would do something like that, but what you would not think to do is you would not insult somebody who seems to have been dedicating his entire life to this question of, can I serve you? You know what? It was a mistake. You're absolutely right. It was horribly handled, but that's an understandable mistake. He didn't say no to him. You're right. He actually says, help uh, clear the wounded and clear the dead from the battlefield. All incredibly important things, but it's insulting to someone who wants to fight. Yes, but also he was just insulting him, you know? I agree with you he insulted him, but I like it because it's kind of a, it's a realistic mistake that the guy would do. He has every single battle technique perfect. You know, he didn't handle that politically the right way. A smarter leader would have handled that the right way. You're right. He would have told him, I have the most important job for you. You gave me this thing of the go pass. The number one position where we will fail is if the guard that we put at this go pass is compromised. And that now guard, that is you. That's yeah. what he could have said. And you are the number one most important person in this army. Exactly. Uh, and you're right. He handled it poorly. And it winds up being their downfall. Exactly. But then there's a first battle and the Spartans win. They hold off this first wave of attackers. They are able to kill all of them. Eventually, they kind of like drive them back and off of this cliff, which again, 
without having read the comic book, I'm like, okay, this is clearly from the comic book. And it looks cool. The bad guys, like, all shoot a million arrows at them, and they all just kind of, like, kneel under their shields, and that protects them. And then they kind of, like, get up and just kind of, like, knock off all of the arrows from their shields. It's so badass when he does that. You know, this film is shot so beautifully that when he slices all the arrows off, you see every splinter fly off. I mean, the cinematographer was this guy named Larry Fong. He did the cinematography for uh, Watchmen eventually. This guy is uh, quite experienced. Yeah. I wonder how much of that was the cinematographer and how much of it was done in post. Because there's clearly a lot of like playing with the color levels and the saturation and the desaturation. Absolutely. No, you're right. I know I'm right. Thank you. I usually am. Um, I like the scene when after they have this battle and they've killed all of these guys and the 300 Spartans are just kind of wandering around with the wounded and just kind of making sure that there's no one that's alive. And if they see someone who's grunting, they just kind of like stab them because this is part of their rule. No survivors. And while they're doing that, Leonidas is just like really casually eating an apple. Like, I don't know where he had this apple. It didn't seem like they were carrying apples, but he's just kind of like chewing it. And then one of them's like, oh, Xerxes wants to talk to you. And he's like, yeah, sure. No reason why I can't go talk to him. No reason we can't be civil while like, you know, the guys are just stabbing people in the head because they're groaning in agony. But Xerxes, he calls himself a god, like a god king or some derivation of that a lot. And, you know, we were kind of talking about this in our episode about The Godfather 2, where Fredo keeps saying that he's smart. Like, if you have to keep saying that you're smart, you're probably not smart. And if you're really a god, you probably don't need to keep talking about how you're a god over and over again. Oh, I mean, this was not a unique thing for, for Persia. I mean, uh, places all over the world would do this. Uh, the pharaohs were uh, were gods, and a lot of people are anointed by God. I mean, it's, it's a time-honored bullshit story, and that's something interesting in this film. Leonidas is not successful in killing Xerxes. However, he's successful in doing basically the next best thing, which is destroying this idea that uh, he is a god because a god could not be injured. And, you know, a spear can't go through the lips of, uh, of a god. Although this guy who calls himself a god has a lot of piercings. So presumably when he got his face pierced in 18 different places, there was a little blood. He probably has every single one of his piercers killed afterwards for that reason. Aww, that's yeah. not very nice. You know how hard it is to find a good piercer in Persia? Uh, very, very easy, actually. Oh, okay. You know, one other thing that's great in this film is the costume design. What? There are no costumes. They're cod pieces. <laughs> well, I love to say cod that— Cod pieces and capes. We should have done this episode wearing cod pieces and capes. I've watched this movie like that before. Have you? Maybe. Is there a picture? Maybe. Can I post it on social media? No. Oh, you're no fun. I mean, the the Spartans are dressed kind of iconically. I mean, those are those are really iconic outfits that they're wearing with the red and and their and their helmets. But the Persians, they have several different classes of the soldiers. They have the first kind of grunts that they had in, in the in the first battle, and then they have this great class of soldiers that they call the Immortals. You know those classic the thespian masks of the smiling and the frowning mask, comedy and, this, and tragedy. Yeah, exactly, and. 
they kind of have the uh, the tragedy mass. And I just love the way these guys are faceless, but uh, they yell out these like grunts of agony when they're stabbed. It's really cool. I just think the costume design is fantastic. And Xerxes himself is so ridiculous. Ridiculous. I mean, it's something straight out of a comic. It's kind of simple, actually, his outfit, but yet it's so ridiculously awesome. Yeah, and I mean, then they do that thing with his voice. It almost sounds like auto-tuned, kind of, you know, where it's like deep and like kind of computery. But there's just battle after battle. There's the immortals. There's guys on elephants. There's guys on rhinos because the kingdom of Persia is huge. And there are all of these beasts from far off lands, you know, that these Spartans have never seen. But the Spartans are able to kill them because they have this great military strategy. Or so they say. The thing about them being forced into this narrow path, I feel like we don't see it, really. I feel like most of the battle scenes, we see them, like, on the beach, kind of near the narrow path. I kind of felt like I lost the thread of their plan a couple of battles in. You're right in that they do venture out of the canyon a decent amount of times. That definitely does happen. They do clearly mention that they build some kind of other wall somewhere, which was what clearly drives the Persians towards these hot gates. But you're absolutely right. A lot of the fight is not in the canyon, which it should be. Right. And also with that wall that you just mentioned, what they do is they build this like huge wall of corpses. And then when the immortals come, they knock the wall over onto the immortals, except not really. They knock the wall over onto one immortal. They kill the one guy who's at the front. And like then there's a million more behind them. These guys are supposed to be like brilliant military strategists and they really fucked that one up. That's exactly what I thought it was until this viewing. There's two walls in this film. There's some other wall that was that had been there, was built hundreds of years ago or something, and was a little bit in disrepair. Early on in the film, right before the first battle, they reinforce that wall. And they even put a couple Persian bodies into that wall a little bit. And that's the wall that they fix. And then they they say at some point, Leonardo's like, the wall will hold. They'll all be funneled into the uh, hot gates. It's a throwaway line, and it's a little confusing because until this particular viewing, I kept thinking that that wall of bodies was this huge wall that was going to keep 100,000 Persians out of whatever alternate route they were going to go. I never quite got that, but but yeah, that, that's what it is. It's not the same wall. Okay, Valid point. It is confusing. But also still, they could have waited until there were more immortals to kill by knocking over this second wall, and they really only used it to kill one guy. You're right. The only thing it could possibly accomplish is that it made the entire immortal army uh, crap their pants, pretty much, when they see this. But... Other than that psychological advantage, you're right. It seems like they probably expelled an enormous amount of energy piling these bodies up 20 feet high. Yeah. So now I'm thinking that Leonidas maybe isn't this brilliant military strategist that we have been told. And I'm also starting to get a little bit bored by these battle scenes that are just happening over and over and over again. And there's just so many times you can see like spears flying and blood splattering and animals falling down and whatever i'm sorry you're getting bored by this or is it repetitive or are you getting bored both i am getting bored by the repetition 
Oh boy, not not me. <laughs> okay, well I was. Meanwhile, back in Sparta, there's this whole other subplot with the queen where she wants the Spartan government to send reinforcements to help Leonidas, but they're not really willing to because the old guys on the mountain said no, and so the queen needs to convince this other guy, Theron, who is going to be her ally. But in order for him to agree to go in front of the council and say that they should send more reinforcements, he wants to have sex with her. And he rapes her brutally. And it is a terrible scene to watch. And then in the next scene when they're at the council, instead of doing what he said he would do if he had sex with her, which is agree, he says, why, she's a traitor and a harlot and she offered herself to me and we can't trust anything this woman says. We should not send any reinforcements to help these guys. And the queen is so mad that she stabs him in front of everyone in this government council. And then they see that he has all of these gold coins from the Persians. He was the traitor. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, and she has a great line because when he's raping her, he says to her, like, this will not be over quickly. You will not enjoy this. And when she stabs him in the abdomen with a knife, she says the same thing. She says, this will not be over quickly and you will not enjoy this. And that is a very satisfying death, I thought, because he not only dies uh, not quickly, but he gets to die as everyone uh, hovers over his body and calls him a traitor. So it's a good death. For the audience to see a bad death for him. Was the, the crowd in the movie theater hooting and hollering at that? Oh, uh, I would imagine they did. I don't particularly remember. Let's just say yes. Let's just imagine that that's what they were doing. And they were not getting bored by all the battle scenes and all the murder and stuff, right? No, they were not. Okay. I have the mental picture of your experience in the movie theater. Uh, meanwhile, Ephialtes, he goes to Xerxes with his knowledge of that secret goat pass. He tells Xerxes and Xerxes is saying, oh, well, you know, I'm very kind and I'm going to give you whatever you want and women and power. I love that they add that all he really wants is a uniform. That's a line they didn't have to add, but it really changes it from kind of a two-dimensional traitor, you know, kind of your typical Judas character, a traitor, you know, who turns to them for money, like this guy in Sparta that, that is stabbed by the queen. He's kind of your run-of-the-mill traitor, just does it for money. This poor guy, this poor Sparta, he just wanted to be accepted. No one's going to accept him, and Xerxes is giving him the next best thing. Yeah, I get that. And now Xerxes is saying over and over again how kind he is, which, again, if you're a god, you don't say you're a god. If you're kind, you don't keep telling everyone how kind you are. But it works. He gets the information that he needs. And now the 300 Spartans are screwed because now their one thing that they had is no longer relevant. And they know this. They find out that uh, Xerxes now has this information about the goat pass and they're screwed. And Leonidas is like, okay, well, then we die. That's part of our culture. We will die. No problem. Whatever. We signed up for this. It's fine. And then he sends away Dilios, the guy who has been narrating. And he says, you have a gift. You can tell stories. It is important that our story be told. Also, he was wounded. He lost an eye in the, one of the battles. Remember what he says about the nature of his eye? God saw fit to give me a spare or something like that. Yeah, he's like, it's only one eye. I have another one. Right. Yeah, he wants to stay and fight, but Leonidas sends him back home anyway. But for the Spartans now, they are going to be surrounded 
And again, I have lost all the geography here because when Xerxes and the huge army comes, it looks like they're still on the beach that they had been having all of their other battles on. It's not like they're in this narrow cave and they're Persians on both sides or anything. So I didn't really get how they were surrounded. No, I think they were surrounded because I think the, the Persians were on the cliffs and everything. I think the arrows were all around them now. Oh, okay. Uh, Xerxes gives Leonidas one more chance. You can kneel before me, you know, kind of like a Zod in uh, Superman 2. This is your last chance. I will let you be the ruler of Sparta and all of Greece, and I will give you all this thing. All you have to do is just kneel before me. And Leonidas does it. He kneels. Oh, my God. I thought he wasn't going to do it. But then it was just like a thing for the guy behind him to jump on him while he's kneeling. And then Leonidas takes his spear and hucks it at Xerxes and makes him bleed. And they fight. They fight to the death. All of his best captains die. Leonidas dies. And that's their thing. They die. They die on the battlefield. They die, and their death inspires the rest of all of Greece to basically unite against uh, Persia. And the final scene is Dilius. He's basically saying, look what 300 Spartans did. Xerxes' army is made up of mostly slaves. Mm -hmm. So these guys are fighting so that they don't get whipped, you know. But these these Greeks, uh, they're fighting for for their lives, for their way of life. And it certainly looks like at the end of the film, you know, even though they're outnumbered three to one, or rather the Persians are outnumbering the Greeks three to one, it is now a very, very uh, unfavorable uh, fight for the Persians. Right, right. Uh, And I think the story is, is that then the Greeks did beat back the Persians, right? Well, Persia does not take over Western civilization. So, yeah. Leonidas dying on that battlefield inspired this army to fight back against Persia and inspired the way that history turned out, is what this movie's implying. Basically, I mean, there's a couple battles like this. Like, there's a battle that uh, had it gone a different way, Carthage would have won the Second Punic War. Western civilization would kind of be Carthage-centric and not uh, Roman-Greek-centric. There's a lot of these battles that Western civilization could have gone very different, and this film supports that idea that this was a turning point of how Europe would have gone. Okay, I was going to use that phrase, turning point. But— Now that we've come to the end of the movie, I will ask you, James, for the 300th time, do you think this movie stands the test of time? I absolutely do. I think this film is fantastic. You have to understand what it is. It is a fantasy. This is not, you know, one of these gritty war films. This is not Saving Private Ryan. This is the Fast and Furious version of it. The soundtrack is electric guitars in this film. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very different. I think the cinematography is fantastic, and I just think the story uh, speaks for itself. I think it's fun. I think it does what it needs to do. Lena Headley, uh, she's great in it too, but of course, uh, she's not known from this film. She's known because of this film, and you said it correctly. She's known more for Game of Thrones, so you know, almost retroactively, you have a little more respect for her here. But I just think she does such a good job in this film. Everyone's really good. There's little things to nitpick, and some of the lines are a little over the top. You know, give them nothing but take everything. You know, these are lines that are kind of cheesy, but I don't know. I've never been in battle. Maybe people say these things. I'm not going to (laughs) comment on what people say here. 
it's a fun film. For me, yes, it stands the test of time. What about you, Al? Do you think 300 stands the test of time? Okay, before I answer the question of does the movie stand the test of time, I am going to do my impression of Zack Snyder in film school. Okay. Okay. I'm very excited for this. So I have to do like two characters here. So I hope it like translates of who I'm doing the character of. I think it will work. I'm going to start off as Zack Snyder's film professor. Okay. All right, class. uh, Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about some various techniques that you can use in your movies to increase uh, dramatic tension. Uh, You can do some slow zoom ins. You can uh, change the music and have a a music swell. Or we'll be talking about slow motion. And then we'll... Oh, excuse me. Excuse me, Professor. Uh, Yes, Mr. Snyder. What did you just say? Oh, I said uh, slow motion. Wait a second. You mean you can take regular motion and slow it down in a movie? Well, yes, Mr. Snyder. This technique is called slow motion. And it's very important that... And then at that moment, Zack Snyder runs out of the room very quickly, ironically. Maybe he makes like a Zack Snyder-sized hole in the wall as he runs out of the room. And then the professor finishes his... Can I guess what the professor's thought was going to be? Yes, you tell me. Yeah, tell me. What What does the professor say? Uh, he's going to say, now remember, in the Alan Noah school of thought of filmmaking, slow motion should be used sparingly. Uh, just take out the Alan Noah part. Everyone knows that. You use slow motion sparingly. And having watched Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is four hours long because it's all shot in slow motion... <laughs> I had to I I was thinking about that while I watched this movie and so much of it is in slow motion. Stop it, Zack Snyder. Use the slow motion sometimes. Use it when it will be effective. If you use it seven times in every scene, it's no longer effective. It's no longer a good dramatic tool in your toolkit. Stop it, Zack Snyder. Stop. I am wagging my finger at you. Um Unrelated to that, if you took a shot every time someone in this movie says Sparta or Spartans, you would be dead. Maybe you don't take a shot. Maybe you just take a sip of beer every time someone says Sparta. You will be wasted by the end of this movie. They say it a lot. Here's an interesting thing about this movie. There are no character arcs at all. Leonidas starts the movie as a hero. He is a hero in the middle of the movie. He dies a hero. The end. Xerxes is evil. Beginning, middle, and end. The queen is noble. The Spartans believe what they believe. Nothing changes. Nothing changes at all. There are no lessons learned. There's no, like, journey where characters change and grow and develop. It's just violence. It's all it is, is violence. And yeah, it looks cool. Yeah, it looks like the comic book. But... At a certain point, that novelty wears off, or it did for me anyway. And when I think about this movie, I think of Sin City, which is another movie we could do on the podcast if you like. But that was a movie that was also based on a Frank Miller comic book, right? That was Frank Miller? I think so. Um, That was another movie from around this time. I think it was maybe a year or two before this uh, that was based on a comic book that was really meant to look like a comic book. Like, you're watching this movie, and you think you're looking at a comic book page. And both this movie and Sin City did that really well. 
But that, as a thing, has not stood the test of time. Comic book movies have, sure, but doing it where it just looks and feels like a comic book panel in every frame of the movie, that's not how comic book movies are now, even just 15 years later. Have you ever seen Ang Lee's Hulk? Yes. Do you remember how he did it? Like, they were literally putting, like, three frames uh, on, like, a comic book panel. That he was trying to make literally a comic book movie. That didn't work. Now, when you make a comic book movie, you need to have characters who go on journeys and learn things and have villains that are maybe not two-dimensional. The two-dimensionality in this movie is, like, kind of laughable and also wrong. You know, this movie was made in the mid-2000s, and the bad guys are the Muslims, and the good guys are the white guys. That's some bad timing there. But Um, it's the Spartans versus the Persians. You can't change that. I mean, if you're going to make this battle, it's going to be Spartans versus Persians. Sure. And the Persians are not Muslim. This is like a thousand years before Muhammad. That's a valid point. But it's still modern-day Iran, and the Spartans are so good. We love the Spartans. They are the good guys. They are the heroes, but they also kill babies who are tiny. Their leaders, like, drag women up to their mountaintops and rape them. Like, they're not so great, but the Persians are certainly evil. Like, they're all the bad guys. Like, Xerxes is comically evil, and it's not a problem when the Spartans kill all of these people who, as you pointed out, are slaves that are just fighting because they have to. But the Persians are conquerors. That's the, that's the difference here. The Persians are invaders. You're absolutely right about the, the Spartans. They're making fun of the Athenians who are like uh, them with their books and everything. Ha ha ha. Oh, well, they don't just say that they love their books. They also say that they love their little boys, uh, which I was reading is kind of inaccurate because the Spartans also did that too. Um, I think this movie, yeah, it looks cool, but it's just like two hours of violence and it's not that interesting. And also just because these kinds of comic book movies are not made anymore, it is fair to say that this movie does not stand the test of time. All right. Uh, different opinion. That's okay. That's okay, Al. That's fine. As usual, you have your wrong opinion. I have my correct opinion. As usual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, I'm mm-hmm. glad you agree. Thank you. Ghostbusters 2, best film of all time, according to you. Uh, I didn't think it stood up, uh, but you hate Passover films. You know, different of opinion now. Check the tape. That doesn't stand the test of time. Go, go, go back and listen to those episodes and see if I really said what you're saying I said. I didn't. But that's okay. <laughs> James, 300 episodes, man. Come on. That is pretty amazing. That is really impressive. Good for us. And good for you, listeners, for listening to all 300 episodes. Yeah, you better have listened to all of them. If there was some episode that you skipped, shame on you. Go back and listen. You know what usually happens after 300 episodes? I know what happened to Joe Rogan after uh, 300 episodes. Uh, He got a bajillion dollars from Spotify? Exactly. You usually get $100 million offers from Spotify. And I I think we're going to stay the same. I mean, we'll be in our solid gold rocket mansions. But, you know, it's going to be very down-to-earth rocket mansions that are solid gold. I think that defeats the point of a solid gold rocket mansion if it's down-to-earth. Well, it'll be convertible. Oh, okay. You do whatever you want with your solid gold rocket mansion. But as we wrap up, I do want to say thank you. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our loyal listeners. Thank you to people who have been listening to us 
since 2016 for 300 episodes. We appreciate it. We do it for you. And honestly, for ourselves, this is just kind of fun for us. But that's going to do it for episode 300. Next week, we have a very special guest coming back on the show. My son, Eli Noah, is going to join us to talk about The Bad News Bears, the original 1976 movie. We're going to talk about it in honor of opening day, which is happening in 2022. The season is beginning, and uh, I'm excited for baseball. As always, we want to hear from you. We love when you talk to us at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us a message. Say hi. You can just say hi. That's fine. It doesn't have to be like a whole thing. Of course, you should be subscribed on all the podcast places. You should write us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that. That helps other people find the show. So if you haven't done that yet, use the excuse that it's episode 300. Let that motivate you to do it. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. 300 down. At least 300 more in the tank. Definitely. I'm in. I'm in. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.